Well, I love technology. I don't know if you like technology, if you uh, like to live out in the, in the middle of a farm, but I love it. Um, I, I've always loved its advances. I, if whatever makes it things a little bit easier and more efficient, I'm, I'm a fan of. Uh, Facebook's new 360 thing that Larry introduced to me a couple weeks ago freaks me out a little bit. I don't know if you've seen that, where you, you can just like rotate your phone and you're seeing the inside of someone else's like picture. So it feels like you're there. That creeps me out a little bit, but I love technology when, when, when it works, let's say that. I love technology when it works. You know, like I love my GPS when it works. You know, getting me to a place on time in the, best, the fastest way possible is a beautiful thing. But when you're driving in Colorado, going to a, uh, with a group of uh, teenagers on the, the highway uh, to a whitewater rafting, and you're in the middle of a field, not a river near you, <laughs> and Siri says, arrived. <laughs> what? <laughs> it drives me crazy. I have, I have rage problems when technology doesn't work. I'm just like, if it doesn't work, then what's the point? I just want to break it right there. I almost threw my phone out the window and thought that might be the best idea. But I, I, it, it drives me nuts. I mean, if you guys think about if a good way to get out some frustration, if you have an old laptop, the, the thing that you once used to say, like, I got to protect. I've got to be very nice too. But now it's just the sitting on your desk because it doesn't work anymore. And the thing that you, you really hate about that is that it just slows down and over time or it's got infected or whatever. Go out there and just break it. You know, just break it. Enjoy. It's a it's a great stress reliever. Um, uh, our printer in our in our church printer room. Sometimes I feel like office space, and I just want to take it out in the middle of the field and hit a bat onto it a couple times. Go to town. I don't know if you guys are like that. Maybe I'm just very violent. But I know you guys have the same satisfaction of being done with something when it's useless. Um, I, I, I've seen that. I've seen that with uh, uh, sweet Dorothy, wherever she is. Uh, I've seen that with my, my, my wife as well, where uh, Dorothy will be back in the copy room, and uh, she's kind of cleaning out things for us, and she says, hey, Slim, do you think we still need this? And I'm like, oh, well, and she goes, trash. <laughs> Didn't need that. What about this? I feel like we have, we've had this for a long time, but it's unuseful, and I'm, I'm saying... Well, there might be one that she's trash. Like, <laughs> clean out, it's done. We're not using it anymore, right, Dorothy? Yep. <laughs> and my wife is the exact same way. And she was just cleaning out our coffee uh, drawer this past week, and she found bags upon bags upon bags of coffee um, that now they're still in the bean form. Um, so they had the potential of still having some flavor left in them. <laughs> uh, but I would, I, they were years old, I think. Uh, and uh, so I was just. Uh, in case I had that emergency that I needed, you know, coffee and I didn't have it, I wanted to keep it there, and she's just like, trash, you know. So she has that same satisfaction. I think we all have that. Um, you know, we all have that, you know, you want to th- take the cell phone and throw it on the ground moment, you know what I'm talking about? We all have the, the you know, the re- moment you realize something is useless. You have the V for vendetta moment that, you know, if the government's not working, then let's just, just blow it up. You know, that anger, don't do that, that anger, that frustration for whatever you feel, let me channel that to what James is angry at right now. James is frustrated with the hypocrisy in the church. James is frustrated with worthless religion, with useless religion. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. We're looking at James chapter 1, verses 22 through 27 and 2, 14 through 26. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. 
for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. James 2:14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? For also, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, by works, when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way, for also the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, we thank you that you are sovereign, you are in charge, even over our works, even over our lack of works. Lord, would you speak to us this morning as we prayed earlier? Lord, would we hear from you? We know you hear us. Would we hear from you, from your word, through James? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you missed our first sermon uh, in this series that we began uh, a little while ago, um, we, we, the sermon series is kind of spanning over a couple months, over the months of the summer months. We're looking at James when, whenever I get a chance to preach. Uh, and we learned that James is actually Jesus' brother. Uh, this is Jesus' actual half-brother uh, who is now writing to us into a, uh, a very um, uh, frustrated group of people, a, very, a group of people who've been dispersed and who've been uh, afflicted and persecuted by the Roman Empire, uh, people who are actually hurting uh, and, and bleeding and being killed and in, and in serious need. And, and he wants them to know, and he, he encourages them in the first chapter uh, with their suffering to, to consider it pure joy. But now he wants them to know that you know, the gospel that we have, the, this faith and religion that we have, uh, it, it isn't just intellectual faith. It actually does something. It actually cares about your pain. It actually goes in there and knows about it and doesn't just know about it, but actually speaks into it and works in it. And so for James, he's arguing here that religion has feet. 
that the gospel does something, and it goes to those places, and he's saying, be encouraged. There is good news, and the good news actually meets you where you're at. And it's, it's not just something intellectual for us to think about, but something very tangible, very tangible and truly good to those who are truly hurting. And so before we get into that goodness, though, uh, James kind of confronts us, if you felt that in that passage, and I apologize it wasn't on the screens here this morning. Um, but he, he confronts the, the readers here. He confronts the, the churchgoers here um, today, and he says that the hypocrisy in the church is outstanding. I mean, if you're a skeptic here this morning, you're like, I love this. <laughs> Finally, we're going to give it to the Christians. Uh, <laughs> you're a bunch of fakers, and that's what James says. You're a bunch of fakers in verse 22. Be doers of the word not just hearers. True religion actually does something. And James is actually saying that real listening, real hearing means that we don't just hear and do nothing. It's as if I, I, t- I tell my boys, go clean your room. And they say, okay, and go about doing nothing. And I'm like, am I even speaking? I mean, what, what's going on here? Or stop hitting your brother. Stop hitting your brother. And you just hear this the whole time. And like, he heard me. That never happens, right? Um, <laughs> what is going on? Are you not listening to me? True hearing is actually doing. And so for us this morning, your, your, your listening is your doing this morning. He's saying true hearers actually do it. They become doers of it. It actually does something to them. And so God is speaking this to us in the most practical book, I think, in Scripture. Of saying it actually does something for us here today. And James is not out by himself saying this. His brother... Jesus actually says this as well. Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Uh, and then he go, James goes on and says, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, this is verse 23, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. And so he tells us that, that God's word is like a mirror. God's word is, is an agent of self-reflection. Uh, so that when you look at it, you actually see yourself. And this may be the reason why most of us don't like reading it, because it kind of makes us cringe a little bit, like, ooh, that's me. Um, <laughs> this book actually, this is the one book that we say, like, you don't read it. It actually reads you. When you read it, it actually tells you something about yourself. It reflects. It, it tells us something about God's character, who he is, his will, what, he, what he's done. But it also tells you something about you. And then that chasm happens, and you, have to, you wonder, what am I going to do? And so the, the, the purpose of a mirror, a, a real mirror, is to reflect, right? It's to reflect and to tell you, um, who you what actual reality is. It's, it's, the good mirrors are going to tell you exactly what it is. It's not like if you look in the, the window in our office there, uh, there's, a, there's a window there. If you look in there, your face gets distorted. And you're like, that's not really me. Um, but a, a true mirror reflects exactly what you look like. It tells you this is reality. It tells you who you are. And you look and you say, okay, let me check my teeth, let me check my hair, let me check my clothes. But with the Bible, when you look, you, you say, let me check my soul. What's going on there? What's going on inside? James uses this metaphor to just reveal the, the absurdity of the situation. You would not ever go to a mirror and say, uh, and let's be healthy, and let's say, oh, I got kale in my teeth, Right? None of you have that problem. Um, I've got kale in my teeth. And go, ah, and then like uh, the silence from Doctor Who, all of a sudden you just forget. Like, I don't know what just happened. I have kale, and I'm always going to have kale in my teeth because I'll, ne- I'll never forget because that mirror has made me forget. 
Or even worse, let's say you look and you say, Kale, hmm, well, I looked. That's really all I need to do. Like, <laughs> you would never do that. Like, I've done my job. I looked in the mirror. That's all I need to do. You know, you would look and you go, okay, let's just scratch the kale out of your teeth. I mean, you look in the mirror and you do something about it. There was a response to the mirror. And he's saying, how, how absurd is it that you look and you do nothing? You go, okay. Well, some of, this is his point here. He's saying this Bible, this, Bible, this word is his agent of self-reflection. It's a mirror. Uh, and, and so you, we listen to the mirrors on the wall. Why not listen to his word? You never look in the mirror and go, my hair is crazy. Hmm, I should do something about that. Or no, you know what? The mirror is broken. I need a different mirror. Or you would look in the mirror and go, I have no hair. I'm bald. <laughs> That's not true. That, that would never be the problem. <laughs> need a new mirror. <laughs> that, it, that, that's absurd, right? We would not blame the mirror. We would not say, well, this thing doesn't know what it's talking about. It's the same absurdity that he's trying to get at us. We're saying, this is telling us exactly what we need to hear, even if you don't like to hear it. That, it, that's self-denial, right? That we would say that that's not true. James is saying that if you look intently, and that word intently is the same word that uh, when Peter comes to, to the Easter Sunday, to the grave, to the tomb, and he looks intently in the tomb for Jesus, it's not just like glancing at the mirror. He's saying if you look intently at this mirror for a long time, and then you walk away unchanged, that's absurd. How long do you guys spend looking at yourself in the mirror? How about a, a better question? What is an acceptable amount of time to look at yourself in the mirror? <laughs> I mean, some of you guys need to look a little bit longer, right? You need to make some changes. Um, some of us stare too long. Um, there's a, a study done that says that men and women are actually equal in the amount of time they stare at themselves in the mirror. And on average, you spend about one hour a day. I felt like that was too high for me. Um, but an hour a day. Now... That's getting up in the morning, bathroom breaks, looking yourself in the mirror, and then at night. Okay, women have makeup to maybe figure out with, but what are you men doing? Like, that's where I'm like, <laughs> that's a lot of staring, like an hour. And so if we would just use that time, instead of staring at the mirror to look at this, God says something big might happen. That when you look at it, it actually reveals your soul to you. Looking into God's word reveals who you are, reveals who God is, and reveals who you are. And it has to produce change. For if we look and we do nothing, it says that we are not just self-deceived, but we're, we're living a sham. He says in verse uh, chapter 217, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. I mean, it's like taking that printer out into the middle of the field and hitting it. You know, like, what's the point of it? And so how do you know if you have real faith or false faith? This is the huge question that we should all be wanting to ask. How do I know? Another way of saying it is, how do I know if, if I'm a faker or not? How do I know if when I get to heaven, God will actually say, well done, good and faithful servant. Will actually say, yes, come into my, my, my world. How do I know that? And he actually gives us some evidence for this. He said, here's some evidence of false faith, that you're just intellectually based faith. We've seen this already. He says, don't just be a hearer, but a doer. A, a hearer is one who's just, he's just a professional sermon listener. Um, they, they are, the, the sermon taster is like, well, I think some Scottish guy uh, talked about. They're, they're just a sermon taster. They just sip on sermons and go, hmm, no, don't like that and spit it out. They're, they're sermon tasters. They don't really like anything that involves emotion. Uh, they, they pretty much want to skip all the worship songs and move straight to the sermon. 
and then they, they sip on it. They, they, they say, okay, I've got it, and spit it out, and they move on with their life. And there's no change. There's just listening. There's just hearing, and nothing actually moves them. There's, no, there's a lack of emotion. James is pushing us to be more than sermon tasters. He wants us to be grace guzzlers and to have the, the grace come into us in such a way that it actually produces something. To not just sip and then spit. <laughs> He's saying do more. He's saying tasting the sermons can, nev- can never actually produce any change. If you are guzzling on grace, though, it would change you to do some things you probably never would do. Changing a poopy diaper is a mark of good theology, I think. Because if you can't see the amount of filth that you put out that the Lord has to clean up, then how are you not going to be able to have the, 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 the focus and, the, and the, the, the humility to come and to, to change someone's diaper? And I see this with, with grandparents all the time and how beautiful that is. They, they know they don't want to do it. And they love the kids and they do it anyways. That's a mark of good theology. It actually moves them to be more than just a hearer of the word, but a doer. And so not only be hearers, but doers. And let's flip this positively. Uh, what proof is there that your faith isn't a sham? What proof can you see that I'm not a fake, that I'm actually a believer, that I, I, something real is going on here, that I will be accepted on the day of judgment? And, and James actually breaks it down into two categories. And these two categories uh, kind of um, define you, define the churches. Typically, the churches have divided into these two categories. And James says it's both. But typically, he says this in, verse, uh, in chapter 1, verse 27. He says, religion that is pure and undefiled before the God is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So true religion, real religion is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And so he's saying this. The message that we're getting from James is he's actually pulling a little bit from Amos 2. And he says uh, where it says the people trample the head of the poor and a man and his father share the same girl. He's saying that. That's not all religion is, but religion has to at least include the two things. Both a love for the hurting and to have a sexual purity or undefiled. And he uses the word undefiled from the world that has a, uh, such a broad stroke that could mean the sexual side, but also could mean just uh, any, any defilement of the world's theology and thinking. And so typically churches and denominations have divided into these two ways, right? You know, traditionally liberal churches are all about standing up for those that are being oppressed and hurting and, 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 and wanting to stick up for those and are, are caring for the poor, protecting those who can't protect themselves, and then in their zeal to, to love no matter who and no matter what, they kind of forget a few things. They forget that, that there is one God, and they forget that God's love actually uh, has, has encouraged us to, to have a, a different sexual ethic and so they, they leave a few of those things behind. But they, they are all about the, the, the zeal and passion for protecting those that are being hurt. That are being hurt. Um, tradi- and then on the flip side, traditional conservative churches are all about family values, all about having the right theology, and don't care one iota for the orphans and the widows and the poor and stick up for those that are hurting. And this is traditionally how the churches have been divided. And you can see that in our domination. You can guess which one I think we are. And it's something that we have to challenge. And the Bible says you can't just pick one or the other. You can't just, you know, come into these and say, hmm, 
which one shall I choose? As, as if you're going through the, um, the cafeteria line and saying, I'll take some of that, I'll take some of that, I'll take some of that, I won't take that. And God says, no, flip the image. The cafeteria line's different. Remember, the Bible reads you, and the Bible says about you, I'll take some of that, some of that, I won't take that, I won't take that. He says, you have to be about both. You have to be about both of these things. The Bible holds both of these together. So first, true religion is compassion. It's, unsta- it's, it's committed deeply to orphans and widows. And we see that in Re- Isaiah 1.10. It says, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. And so re- true religion actually cares about people. <gasps> what a surprise, right? <laughs> it actually cares about people. It's, it's about compassion, but not compassion that just says, man, I feel for you. I hope you get better. I hope you have a warm place to stay tonight. No, true compassion is risky compassion that will cost you a lot. Now, singer, songwriter John Foreman says that if it doesn't break your heart, it isn't love. There has to be a, a risk to your compassion, a, a compassion that's going to hurt I mean, so do you have someone that you hurt for? Is there someone or a person or a group of people that you just, it breaks your heart to think about what they're going through right now? He's saying true religion is about that, just caring for those people in such a way that it hurts you. And this could be different for different people, right? I mean, it could mean giving a homeless man a dollar like Kendrick Lamar. It could mean bringing that man home for a full meal. It could mean serving at CareNet Pregnancy Center. It could also mean adopting a teenage mother's baby who's HIV positive. There has to be some risky compassion, a, a care. True religion is costly in this way, that compassion for those who can't help themselves or protect themselves. And so this is where our denomination, and I think us as a church, need to look in the mirror Do we cry at the pain of others? Does that hurt our hearts? Do we feel that, you know, when someone, we look at children who've grown up and who haven't had the same experience as us, they don't look at their childhood as something positive. They look at something to to get away from and to be free from. I mean, does that break our hearts knowing that some kids' parents call them vermin? That they're trash? And literally... Babies have been put into the trash can. Does that break your heart? Orphans also includes those who are boarded. I mean, who's more helpless than them? Who can't fight for themselves. And we as a, a society, I think, are just like, we, we want to we stick up for that. But man, if it, what does it mean to stick up for that? And we think, well, maybe the atrocities like that don't really happen. And then when the, the videos are leaked of what actually happens, you know, I mean, real Christians respond and say, you can't do that. You can't break a baby's neck. I mean, if we believe and do nothing, then what are we doing here? That's what James is saying. He's like, if we believe and do nothing, then what, uh, what is this? Do you think such faith can save you? He says, no. What, I mean, what's the point of this? What's the point of it all if we can't actually care for those who can't protect themselves? 
Don't you see what Jesus did for you? You were the orphan. You were the widow. True religion, real theology is marked by compassion, a deep compassion for these people. This compassion reaches to those who's lost their spouses. John Piper says this, The loss of a husband or the one who fathers your child in death is heartbreaking beyond words. But the loss of a husband through abandonment is in some ways worse. Amputations caused by death usually heal clean. Amputations caused by abandonment often stay infected. It does not heal the same. I don't think Piper's trying to elevate one or the other. He's trying to see the category here of what widows, who widows are. And I've, I've experienced neither, but our hearts break for these, for these men and women who have felt that. They are our priority. They are who we are wanting to protect and stick up for. And so first, true religion is compassion. And then true religion is unstained, he says. Again, that's such a broad stroke. That he's, it, it could mean a couple different things, but it, at, at least it means uh, sexual purity, implications to the lust of our eyes, any contaminating influence. And then it also means one's theology has to be unstained. And this is usually the pride of our denomination, right? We're right. We know what we are talking about. Um, and I want to let God, through James, prod you, if that is where your heart is. Chapter 2, 19, he says, You believe that God is one. You do well. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> can you feel the sarcasm James is saying here? You believe that God is one. You believe, you, you have, you, wow, the Reformed gurus <laughs> have got it all figured out. You know it all. But you know who actually knows just a little bit more about theology than you? Demons. <laughs> Demons know more than you. And they shudder. So congratulations on figuring it all out, having the better theology. But what does that mean? And so James is actually swinging for the fences here and saying, your right theology can't save you. Just because you see the faith as more logical and makes more sense than other religions doesn't mean that you love God. Jonathan Edwards says, Dead faith can see the holiness of God and the wisdom of God and even the power of God and a little bit of the love of God. But dead faith can never see the loveliness of God. Real faith sees the loveliness, the, the beauty of God. That's something different. And that beauty is actually what, what is put into Abraham and Rahab's heart that moves them to change we heard about Rahab last week. We, we know about Abraham. He tells us in verse 21, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And you remember the story, right? Abraham believes. He leaves his country. He marries Sarah or Sarai, uh, who's barren, and uh, so she was just made where she could not have a baby. And then God intervenes. He he. He does some supernatural work, which he still does today, and he comes in, and he, he makes her be able to have a baby, and they have a baby named Isaac. And then God tests Abraham and says, okay, take that baby of yours that you've been longing for forever and ever and ever up to this mountain, 
and sacrifice him and kill him. And so Abraham believed God and went up the mountain, had the knife in hand, and then God intervened and gave him a substitute uh, to, to kill instead of his son. And it's a beautiful story of the gospel. But what James is now pushing us towards is saying, Abraham believed, and that belief wasn't dead. It actually did something. Then Rahab has a change of heart and does something. She's moved to act to protect God's people. And we all want, so the, the question is, was, there, was, there, was it their belief or their action that saved them? And we all want to quote Paul and say, you know, faith, uh, his faith was credited to him as righteousness. And that, that's scripture. He's, faith is credited to him as righteous, even though not righteous, right? Abraham is pronounced not guilty, though he was guilty. He was pronounced uh, lovable, even though he was unlovable, and, and uh, uh, you know, his faith wavered all the time. That's usually how we define the word justification. Someone is justified, they are made right solely because of the death of Christ. And we can quote verses like Romans 3, 28, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. A man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And so justification is never our work. It's solely Christ's work. We are justified by faith apart from the works of the law. That's clear. But, and it feels heretical to use that word right there, James 2.24 says, You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. A person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And you might be thinking, James, 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 are you an idiot? You, you lived with him forever and ever. You don't even get why Jesus came? I mean, what, what is going on? And all the skeptics are saying, see, told you the Bible contradicts itself. Or the word justification can have two meanings. It's as if I was to say this weekend, did you watch any of the football that was played? And you go, you're an idiot. It's not the fall. And I would say, okay, I meant soccer. Justification has two different meanings. Typic, the typical use and the word, that, the, the justification, the word that we're, we want to use all the time is that, and it's seen in Paul's writing almost all the time, is that justification is this legal declaration that you are declared as if in a courtroom, not guilty, even if you were guilty. It's nothing that you can do. And that's why we can say, and we will continue to say at this church, you know, stop trying so hard. Rest. Quit your deadly doings. Stop trying to add to your salvation and trying to earn it. That's not your work. That's Jesus' work. But on the same token, justified also means to show evidence of, to prove something is authentic, that you are made right. And so it's as if we all go out to dinner, uh, and I, we all go out to you know, Saltgrass Steakhouse, and we're eating steaks galore, and calories are just building up, and at the end, I offer to pay for it. And you know, this is a fictional account because I would never do that. Um, <laughs> but it, let's say I say, hey, it's, it's taken care of. Uh, the waiter came and got my, my, my card, and she's gone. And I say, what happened? You say, it's taken care of. Has it actually been paid yet? 
Have you, have, you, have you paid? Have you done anything for it? No, you've been declared not guilty. You don't have to pay anything. But let's just say you're the type that hates to have someone pay for you, and you have the you know, people, usually like my dad and some other dads, just argue, no, 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 I'll pay for it, no, I'll pay for it, I'll pay for it. And then at the end, someone else pays for it. And then let's say in this situation, I've already paid for it, and you say, all right, show me the receipt. I want to know how much it was because I want to pay it. So now I have to justify to you that it was paid for, even though I already declared it's done. I now have to justify to you that it's already paid for, and you have to see how much it is and write me a check later. And so the word justify has these two different meanings. One, declared righteous, another to prove righteous. And so what James is saying is that you are justified by your works and not by faith alone. And he's saying, you and I, if truly are believers, if, if we have been truly given life, then it's going to come out. Something will happen. We will prove ourselves, not prove ourselves to get into heaven, but it'll, it'll be evidenced. It'll come out. And let me be clear that your works do not save you. They only prove of what's going on in your heart. So if a, you are a lemon tree, you will produce lemons. You will never, ever produce oranges. If the lemon tree is dead, it will stop producing lemons. There, but a lemon tree, if it has life, it does. It grows, and it may take time, but it grows, and, and fruit comes out. Jesus says the same thing on the Sermon on the Mount. You will recognize them by their fruits. Does their fruit give them access to heaven? Well, no. It's an outward sign of an inward reality. Let me ask that again. Does their fruit give them access to heaven? James says that you're justified by your works and not by faith alone. And he's trying to tell us it's not enough to intellectually affirm the faith. Real faith actually changes you. And so how do we say on one hand, stop trying so hard and rest, and at the same time say, fight, fight, show compassion, get involved. How do we do both? There are two ways that you can be living a sham. There are two ways that you know you can be living a sham. And this is, I think, what we want to see. Paul and James here are trying to fight these two errors of the church. It's as if they're in like the, one of those Avenger movies, and the enemies are coming in at all sides, and they're back-to-back. And so they're back-to-back fighting. You know, Paul on one side is fighting over here, and James is fighting over here, and they're fighting two different enemies. And Paul is fighting those that are trying to earn their salvation, wanting to add something to it, trying to prove themselves to God, trying to, trying to uh, make them build themselves up and say that I've done it, it's not you, God, make themselves feel better about themselves and put others down. And we at this church at Redeemer have taken up that mantle, and we believe that that, that is a, a, a real, real fight here in Waco where we, any church can be about anything but Jesus, it seems. And so that's our focus. But James is fighting another fight right now. James is saying, let's fight this other fight of easy believism that just says, no, I believe, and has no intent of, of change and no intent of actually believing. It just intellectually affirms to be a part of the culture, I guess. Uh, and you, you, James is fighting a different fight. And so on one side, it can say, by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works. That's Paul. The other side can say, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And so if that's the thing you're becoming, if you're anti-law, anti-works, 
James is saying you become an antinomian, anti what God's about here. And so, well, what should we do? Well, if you're feeling like a hypocrite, if you're feeling like a sham, <laughs> just feeling very convicted of the sermon, your faith hasn't produced works, as well as if you're feeling burned out on Christianity and feel like anything you do is never enough, let me encourage you guys to go back to a verse that was kind of an odd little verse when we were talking about mirrors earlier in chapter 1. Verse 25 says, But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty. The law is this mirror. If you look into it, it reveals something about you. But when you look at the, the law, it, it, your reactions change to it. And usually when you look at a law, you look at this law, the, soul, the only thing you're feeling is condemned, judged, oppressed. And now he calls it the perfect law of liberty. What happened? Well, what happens is here, this is, the, this is our job as pastors and preachers every Sunday is to give you kind of these three different responses to, to looking at the Word. And we encourage you to do the same when you're going into the Bible on your own. Is that when you first look at the Word, you go, ah, you, you just, we want to reveal something about God to you. We want to, hey, this is a new angle. You never heard about God. And you go, what? Is that in the Bible? Is, is James in the Bible? <laughs> we want to reveal something about God that would just give you an eye open. But then two, as you're seeing something about God, you now say, Oh my goodness, is that me? It reveals something about you. It reveals the kale in the teeth, or let's be honest, it reveals the, the zebra cakes on your shirt. Uh, we know what's, what's going on there. But it reveals the sin. It reveals something about you, and you go, oh no. And it condemns and it oppresses, and you, you, you don't feel good about yourself. And now he says this is the perfect law of liberty, of freedom, because it drives you to Christ. And when you go to him and you see what he's done for you, it changes your view of the law and say, he's done it. It's, I don't feel condemned anymore. The law hasn't changed, but your view of the law has changed. This book, when we look at it, is a book of rescue and redemption. It's not a book of rules. And when we look at it through that lens of seeing it is God rescuing and redeeming his people for himself, when we look at it that way, something changes about us, and we start seeing it in a new way that Christ has justified us and paid for our debt completely, then we see the loveliness of God that Edwards was talking about. Then we see the beauty of God. Say, that is so beautiful that you've done that. And that beauty is the only thing that's ever going to make you a consistent doer of the word. That when you see the beauty of what he's done, it changes our hearts to actually become doers of the word, to move us. That's the only thing that will move us. And so to see Christ and to see that he is the only person who has ever actually a doer of the word, who actually done it perfectly, who has ever actually cared for orphans and widows and was unstained perfectly, see that he was the only one who's ever done it and actually now gives you that moment so we can say rest. He's done it. Rest in him and now work. See the beauty of Christ, rest in Him, give up your deadly doings, and then see what that does to you. Then work out your salvation with fear and trembling, still resting and working at the same time. Then fight for those who, who can't fight for themselves. Show compassion and love people because of what He's done for you. Work. Work. 
Rest, rest, work. We see Christ work, and we rest, and we work. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have worked for us.